Nine-year-old uh, Joey was asked by his mother what he had learned in Sunday school. He said, well, Mom, our teacher told us how God sent Moses behind the enemy lines on a rescue mission to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. When he got to the Red Sea, he had his engineers build a pontoon bridge and all the people walked across safely. Then he used his walkie-talkie to radio headquarters for reinforcements. They sent bombers to blow up the bridge and all the Israelites were saved. His mom looked at him and said, Now, Joey, are you, are you sure that's the way that it was told to you this morning in Sunday school? He said, Well, no, Mom. But if I told you the way the teacher told us, you'd never have believed it. You know, and many of us can identify with Joey when it comes to skepticism with regards to the miraculous. So as a result, uh, we often come up with our own idea as to what God can and cannot do, which leads me to this opening question, and that's this. What is the greatest miracle that God could do for any one of us? The greatest miracle. You know, some would argue that it would be healing us of some major illness of some sort. Others would say, well, why stop there? You know, the greatest miracle would be getting, you know, raised from the dead. You know, and still yet, the greatest miracle that I believe that God could do for any one person is to take a sinner and to forgive them of sin and entrust to them eternal life based on faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. See, the greatest miracle that we see in the Bible is a sinner coming to faith in Christ and being forgiven by God. And the reason I believe it's the greatest miracle, and we'll see several, uh, several reasons why I believe that as we go through our text this morning, but the reason I believe that is that salvation, you know, costs the greatest price. When you stop and think about it, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, those of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, believing that He died on the cross in our place, that He rose again from the dead, the Bible says that that salvation comes at the greatest price that could ever be paid. And that's the death of His own Son and His blood shed upon the cross. The Bible says, for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in our earthly bodies. It comes at the greatest price. It also produces the greatest results. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 12 that Jesus, you know, He endured the cross and despised the shame for the joy that was set before Him which is our forgiveness and reconciliation. The Bible says that God was at work in Christ reconciling man to God. And also it brings the greatest glory to God that we are trophies of God's grace and His mercy. So in our continuing study, if you've got your Bibles with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 9. We come to a section that finds Peter participating in all three of these miracles. When you stop and look, and when you stop and consider this passage, he's, we see him participating in all three. A great miracle, which was the healing of a body that we'll see, a greater miracle, which was the raising of the dead, and also the greatest miracle of all was winning lost sinners to, G to faith in Jesus Christ. So as we go through this, we're going to find that P Peter participated in Acts chapter 9, the end of the chapter, we'll start there, but he participated in all three, in the healing of Aeneas, in the raising up from the dead of a woman by the name of Tabitha, and also, we see in the salvation to Cornelius and his household. Man, this guy had a couple of exciting days. How was your week? I mean, you know, when you stop and think about this. In, in Acts chapter 9, we'll start with verse 32. We read these words. It says, Now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all of this particular area, 
he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas who had been bedridden eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise, make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. No matter how large their ministries were, we'll stop at this particular point, no matter how large their ministries were, we'll see the disciples were always involved in the lives of individuals. Moses, if you recall, had worn himself out being involved in the lives of people to the point where his father-in-law had to say, hey man, you know what, you're going to kill yourself if you don't start to delegate and get more people involved in the lives of others. We see that in the case also of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Although he spoke to multitudes at many times, there were many instances in Scripture where he met individually, one-on-one, with a person for a specific purpose at that time. Stephen, another great example of a man who was involved in the ministry to widows, meeting with individual people one-on-one to help meet their needs. We see it all throughout the Bible that those who were involved, even in large, large ministries, never neglected the ministry of individuals. We see it in the life of Paul. We now see it in the life of Peter. God expects all Christians, leaders included, to pour out their lives into the lives of others. As I read through this passage and as I take a look at this, there's two things that jump out. First of all, number one, I've already mentioned that Peter was involved in the lives of others. He wasn't distant. He wasn't aloof. He wasn't shrouded in some type of mystery, this you know, apostle that nobody understood, nobody got to know. He was consistently involved, involved in the lives of others. Notice in verse 32 it says, Now it came about that as Peter was traveling through all of those parts. I like that because... Those actively involved in ministry are usually the ones to whom God grants the most ministry opportunities. I want you to stop and think about that. God has always seemed to entrust His richest ministries to His busiest saints. If your Christian life is boring, then I will challenge you to consider what it is that you're doing at this point in your service to the Lord. Remember in our message of, are you born again? That one of the evidences of a person who has genuinely come to faith in Christ is his service to the Lord and ministering to the needs of others and in so doing, ministering to the Lord himself. The question that you've got to ask yourself is this, you know, how busy or active are you in the lives of other people? You know, I've found it often in my life, it's always easier to direct something that's already moving than to try to get something that's not moving going. You got that? I mean, it's always easier when something's moving, man. I mean, you know, we got these new trash cans, you know, with the wheels on it and stuff. You know, sometimes it's like you pull it and it'll pull you over. And you go, man, what in the world? But once you get that thing going, it's hard to stop it going down the driveway. You know, we live up on a hill and, man, you know, it's just like you got to get that thing stopped. But I found it's always easier once that thing gets moving to direct it any direction that we want to go than it is to try to get that thing moving to begin with. Some of us, don't take this personal, are like the trash can. If I would have thought of something that would have made you feel better, I would have. But I, I, that's all I came to mind. You know, I'm a simple guy. Simple things mean a lot to me. Some of us are like the trash can. We're just like stuck in place and we're just not moving. And because we're not moving, God is not doing anything through us for his glory. So, word picture. This week, become a trash can. You know, when you take that can, that can out to the street, I want you to think about it. Am I moving to the point where God can now lead me and direct me into his service? 
It starts somewhere. It always has to start somewhere. Peter was a man who was moving. He was always in motion for the Lord in his movement. God leads Peter to a certain man by the name of Aeneas. We see it in verse 33. He's been bedridden for eight years. He's paralyzed. He can't walk. Peter's availability and his involvement with others has opened just one more door for ministry. He's in the right place at the right time because he's following the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life, but he's in motion. He's moving. He's doing something, anything for the Lord. Now he comes to this point where here's Aeneas, and this great miracle is about to take place in the healing of a body. I love this. It says, And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Now, for those of us who are parents with small children, or maybe even older children, you might want to underline the command there, make your bed. Just in case you missed that one, you circle it, underline it, make your bed. It's commanded by God in Scripture. See how we can just take things out of context and just make them work any way that we want. The second important factor that we see here is not only is he involved in the lives of others, but I want you to notice he gives Jesus Christ all the glory. He says, Aeneas, arise, for it's the Lord Jesus Christ who heals you. It's not me, the big apostle. It's none of us. It's all about Jesus. It's Jesus whom God has highly exalted and given a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. It's Jesus who has been given authority to judge all of mankind because of the sacrifice that he's made on the behalf of all who will believe on the cross. It's Jesus Christ who deserves and demands all of the glory of anything and everything that we do in our life, everything that we accomplish, to him be all the glory. Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. Paul also understood that it's Jesus Christ who gets all the glory. To the Ephesians he wrote, Now to him who was able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Of His ministry He wrote, Therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. As I looked at this and as I studied this and as I was convicted by the Holy Spirit of this one truth, and that is this. When was the last time that you deflected attention from yourself and gave Jesus Christ all of the glory? For the accomplishments in your life, for the things that we have done, whatever that is in our businesses and in our education and in any accomplishment that we have ever had when somebody says, hey, you did a good job. And we need to be gracious people, but it's also an opportunity, an opening. We're always looking for an initiative somewhere along the line where we can share with a person the greatest news that they could ever hear. And that is that, yes, they're sinners. They're separated by God, from God. And they remain in that state for all of eternity if something drastic doesn't happen in their life. That opportunity to say, even though we are sinners, God sent His Son into the world to die for us. 
Yet while we're in rebellion against God, God sought us out. He still loves us. Even when he understands, as, as Jerry was saying, when he understands everything about us, all of our thoughts, all of our doubts, all of our hatefulness and resentment toward God because he isn't serving us as we think that he should. He still loves us. And he sent Christ to die in our place upon a cross. For those who believe, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And rather than take credit for our accomplishments, it's a great opportunity to deflect all the glory and attention, everything that we are, everything that we've done, everything that we have, we owe all to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. To Jesus Christ be all the glory and all the praise. We live in a world that hates the name of Jesus. Someone has got to exalt it. And you and I, who have been touched by the grace and the mercy of God, are given that privilege and also that responsibility to exalt the name of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which men can be saved. When was the last time I deal with people on a regular basis who have opportunities to be able to deflect the glory and attention of their accomplishments to Jesus Christ. Reporters don't want to hear it. Nobody wants to hear it. Because it makes them very uncomfortable because we live in a world where we want to hear people brag about themselves, boast about their accomplishments. But the Bible says if there's anything worth boasting, anything worthy of all, it's boasting in Jesus Christ. Because you know what? Outside of Him, we are nothing. Nothing. You can't accomplish, I can't accomplish the things that we accomplish if God hasn't given us life. You can't get out of bed in the morning to go do the things that you're going to do if God doesn't give you the breath of life and the ability to get out of bed and to go to work or to go to school or to go into your community or your neighborhood and do the things that you do. See, Peter understood that clearly. Aeneas, rise up for it's Jesus Christ who heals you. And in fact, make your bed because you're never going to need it again. Because when Jesus heals, he does it completely and he does it instantaneously. There are no progressive healings found throughout Scripture. When God does something, he does it right immediately. The first time is the last time. You won't need your bed no more. When Jesus Christ touches someone's life, it is instantaneous, it is complete, and it is eternal. When we look at this great miracle, we go, wow, you know what? Notice what happens here. In verse 35, And all who lived at Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Isn't that great? I want you to notice something about this miracle. All who saw Aeneas walking turned to Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. Not some, but every one of them. Talk about thorough. That's awesome. Can you imagine? Every person that saw him was so blown away by it. It was like, wow. Man. And I want you to notice the words, turn to the Lord. I have continually and will continually emphasize this truth. The world, according to Scripture, is in rebellion against God. All have sinned. None are righteous. Every last one of us, no matter how good we think we are, is in rebellion according to God from God. We are walking away, and in many cases, running as fast as we can, trying to out, you know, gain the love of God that's pursuing us. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. 
The reason that man doesn't know God isn't because God isn't actively seeking man. It's because man is actively trying to ignore the seeking of God. We are running from God. Where it says that they turn to the Lord very vividly is a picture of people who are in rebellion against God, refusing to believe what God says is true of their life, that they're sinners. They stop, they recognize that they are, they're sinners, that they're running from God. They turn from sin, they turn to God, and God is right there in our face because He's been pursuing us all the time. It's one of the easiest pursuits that anybody can ever enjoy, and that is the pursuit of God, because God's not trying to get away from us. He created us to have fellowship with us. He created us that we could enjoy His presence for all of eternity. He's not playing hide and seek with us. It was Adam who was hiding from God. God in the garden, God wasn't hiding from Adam. God says, if you remember, hey, Adam, where are you? Not that he didn't know he was making a point. Where are you? What did Adam say? I'm hiding from you. Really? It's not working. I know where you are. You ever play you know, hide and seek with a little kid? And they, like, they stick their head under a pillow, and meanwhile, everything else is sticking out. You know, it's like, okay, count. Okay, Papa, my, you know, our grandson, he's hiding, you know, he hides in the room, and his feet and everything else are hanging out behind. He buries his head in our, in our bed, in our pillow, in his rear end, and everything else is sticking up. He's like, try to find me. That's what it reminds me of. It's like, you know, we're like that with God. Oh, God, try to find me. See if you can catch me. Well, duh. I think he can. It's man who's hiding from God. And God says if you repent from sin and you turn to God, where it says that these people turn to the Lord, it indicates that they turn from sin. They turn to God. They embrace Jesus Christ as their Savior, recognizing their sin, responding with faith to the finished work of Christ. They believe that He died on the cross in their place. They believe that He rose from the dead. They believe that He could forgive sin. They embrace Him as their Savior. And it didn't stop there. Then they continued to walk in a manner worthy of their calling. They lived out the Christian faith. They didn't pray a prayer, or sign a card, or stand up, or come down front, and then go continue to live like hell the rest of their, their life. Hey, good news, pray a prayer, I'm covered, and I can keep doing the things I used to do. No! You turn from sin and you turn to God and you live a new life. You're new creatures. Old things pass away. All things become new. When they turn to the Lord, everything changed in their life. And now they walked and they lived their life in a manner worthy of their calling. They lived according to the principles of Scripture. They glorified Jesus Christ in the way that they lived their life. They praised His name by their righteous way of living. They turned to the Lord. And they were never the same since. What a great miracle that is. But you know what? That's, I mean, that's just, just kind of warming things up a little bit. Because notice now what happens in verse 36. Now in Joppa, there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. Now I'm thinking she probably liked Tabitha. I, just a thought. I read through this and kind of go, you know, Dorcas. I mean, come on. Hey, Dorcas, come on over here. Nah, you know, I'm thinking Tabitha probably was, would she rather go with Tabitha? Anyway, either way, both words translate gazelle. She was a beautiful woman. This woman was abounding. Notice this. Not only was she beautiful, her heart and her character exemplifies the beauty of a Proverbs 31 woman. I mean, just as awesome. It says that, and she, the deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it came about that at that time that she fell sick and she died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. 
And since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, entreating him, saying, Do not delay to come to us. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him into the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and the garments that Tabitha used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out, knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner whose name was Simon. As great a miracle as the healing of the body was, I mean, you know, this is a pretty good one right here, raising someone from the dead. You know, you'd think it would get someone's attention. As we look at this, we notice several things about her. She was a wonderful woman. She was a woman that, you know, we often talk about, you know what, well, God, why, why does God take good people? You know, and I'm not sure exactly what that always means, but, you know, I know everybody has a different idea. Now, here's this lady. She's busy serving the Lord. Man, she's busy, you know, in, in a service. She's taking care of the, the needs of widows because in those days, nobody took care of the widows' needs other than the church. They took care of the widows' needs. We saw that in Acts 6 where they were distributing money and funds that were needed to take care of widows. Here was a woman, man, and she was taking care of widows. She was making quilts and blankets for them. I mean, she was busily, actively involved in the service of others. And you sit there and go, wow, you know what? Why would God take such a person? And I'm thinking it's because precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Don't ever forget that death is a reward to those of us who have come to faith in Christ. Because absent from this body, we're present with the Lord. I mean, you know what? I mean, you may be thinking about it from a selfish standpoint. God, why'd you take this woman? Because she was meeting a lot of our needs. But certainly God didn't punish her by taking her. But he also had a great purpose in this particular event. And the great purpose always was a greater purpose or the greatest miracle, which we'll see in a second. She was a disciple. She was named Tabitha. The Bible says she was a woman who did great deeds that we see. She, she uh, represented what we know in Ephesians 2.10 to be true, and that's this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Colossians 1.10, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. She was a woman that there was no question that the love of God and salvation had come to her household. It was evident by the fact that she did the deeds that she did that were prepared beforehand from the foundation of the world, for us to do in our works. There are things that you and I need to be doing. We need to get busy doing them because God's already prepared them for us to do. What are we doing? Again, it's a challenge to get busy serving Christ if you have genuinely come to know Him as your Savior. Some of us get so involved in the activity of this world. The 1 Timothy 6 warns that those who want to get rich or long to get rich even wander from the faith, piercing themselves with many a pang many a consequence, that the materialistic world that we live in consumes our time and our efforts and our energy. Then we've got more free time and we've got more disposable income. And rather than use it for God's glory, we use it selfishly for our own pleasures. And that's the reality of our culture and it's hard to hear and it's hard for me even to recognize it in my own life because it's so subtle. And yet God calls us. He saves us to serve Him. 
to do the work that He's prepared for us to do before the foundation of the world that we may glorify Jesus Christ in our lives. She was busy serving the Lord, doing what she was supposed to do. She fell sick and she died. Now notice in verse 37, they washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. That was proper. They were preparing her body for burial. But since Lydda was near Joppa, it was only 12 miles away, the disciples heard that Peter was there and they had heard about the healing of Aeneas. They sent for Peter and said, don't delay to come to us. And Peter arose. And when they came to the upper room in verse 39, notice that all the widows stood beside him weeping. Man, they were showing the tunics and the garnets that Tabitha had used to make while she was there. Man, these people were all there and they were mourning her death. And I thought, wow, who's going to miss me? Who's going to miss you? How many will come to mourn your departure from this world into the next? How many? Many? You, I know that. (laughs) They're just going to be poking you, making sure. It's like, it's like the story I heard about the three guys. I think I've shared it before, but it's appropriate right at this point. The three guys who are all friends, they all died, and they were all standing before the Lord, and they were coming to Him one at a time, and they were asked, hey, what do you want the people to say as they come to view your body at the funeral? And the first guy said, well, I want them to hear him say that, you know, I was a great doctor, that I contributed to humanity, that I came up with cures for many diseases. second guy said, well, I want to hear that I was a great husband and a great father, I was a great teacher, and I contributed to society by teaching the youth of our country, you know, to prepare them for the future. And the third guy thought about what was said, and, and he said, you know what, I'd like to hear him say, hey, look, he's moving. Um, so, you know, there, there's, a, there's, always a, you know, there's always a different way to see things, but... But getting back to the seriousness of the point, that's this. You know, who's, who's going to miss you? I'll tell you who will miss you. The people whose lives that you have touched. They'll miss you. The people whose lives that you have touched and you've made an impact for the kingdom of God, they will miss you. But if you aren't busy touching lives, there aren't many people who are going to miss you. I've had the opportunity to speak at many different funerals and memorials. I'll tell you what, there's nothing sadder than speaking at a memorial or a funeral for a person that nobody wants to come. When half the family's missing, there's only a handful of people that are there And as you're speaking, they're looking at their watch every three minutes. Is this over yet? Have we done our duty? Because i got other stuff to do. I've often said that, you know, it's a successful Christian life when you can have people come to your funeral and never once look at their watch. They're not in a hurry to recognize how you've touched their life. It's the least that they can do for all the time that you invested in them for them to say goodbye and to also encourage those who are there. Who will miss you? We have an opportunity to change that because we can leave here today with a newfound commitment in serving others for the kingdom of God, in reaching others for Jesus Christ, in building others up. You can change that day, today, 
and tomorrow and the next day by getting involved in the lives of people, by caring for people, by reaching people for Jesus Christ, by touching their lives. You have a direct impact on what that day will be like and nobody else. Another principle jumps out, and that's this. Notice that Peter was a prayer warrior. He sent them all out. It says, and he knelt down in verse 40, and he prayed. He prayed. One of the signs of one who has truly been born again is that we're fervent in prayer. To pray without ceasing. He was a man of prayer, essential to all successful ministry. Prayer acknowledges our dependence upon God. I love the story that I read not too long ago. Many years ago, five college students made their way to London to hear Charles Haddon Spurgeon preach. Arriving early at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, they found the door still locked. While they waited on the steps, a man approached them, said, would you like to see the heating apparatus of the church? That's not what they had come for, but they agreed to go with him, and he led him into a building, down a long flight of stairs, and into a hallway. And at the end of the hallway, he opened a door into a large room filled with 700 people on their knees praying. That, said their guide, who turned out to be none other than Spurgeon himself, is the heating apparatus of this church. Seven days without prayer makes one week. W-E-A-K. We're to be men and women who pray without ceasing knowing that everything, all power comes from God. Everything that happens is all because of God and His strength and only because we're obedient can He use us. And Peter knelt down and he prayed, Lord, may Your will be accomplished. And he turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known over all Joppa. And notice this. And many believed in the Lord. Does it strike you that the raising of the dead, only many believed? And the healing of a paralyzed man, all believed? What's interesting about it is this. There's never a case in the Bible where a believer was healed. They were only raised from the dead. There is never a case in the Bible where a believer is healed of any ailment. Aeneas was not a believer. He was healed for the purpose of the greater miracle or the greatest miracle of all, that those who would see would come to faith in Jesus Christ and believe upon Him for the forgiveness of their sin. I believe that only many believed because of Tabitha's healing because she was already known as a follower of Jesus Christ. All believed when they saw a healing. Many believed when one was raised from the dead. And it also immediately reminded me of the words in Luke 16, where we're told that one who was waiting for judgment asked of God if he could come back from the dead and warn his brothers and his family of the truth of the judgment of God and the reality of separation from God and the reality of a place called hell. And he was told that even if one comes back from the dead, that many would not believe. Because God's Word is true. And the world has the Word of God, which reveals the will of God. 
and yet man doesn't believe the Word of God. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as God's greatest sign to point people to faith in Christ, that He truly is who He claimed to be, and that is the Savior of the world. He said, the sign of Jonah, after three days I will raise from the dead. It was a tremendous sign that we can put our faith and trust in Him. The power of the resurrection without it, everything Christians believe is useless according to 1 Corinthians 15. Everything that we believe hinges on two great pillars. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf and the resurrection of His body from the dead that He is alive today. Everything we believe is supported by those two great truths. As we look at this, only many came to faith. But the important thing is this, that in each case the greatest miracle of all took place, and that was many turned from sin and turned to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So now we're going to look at, in Acts chapter 10, an example of this greatest miracle in the life of a man named Cornelius. It's a pivotal point, a turning point in our study in the book of Acts because it is at this point where salvation comes to the Gentiles. We are told that you know, we are to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the outermost parts of the earth, and God's plan is now in full motion. This is a pivotal point in our study in the book of Acts. The greatest miracle of all is winning lost sinners to faith in Jesus Christ. Mark Twain's classic novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, records the following exchange between Tom and his friend Huck Finn. It says, Tom has just informed Huck that he's not welcome in Tom's gang. Huck protests. He says, now Tom, ain't you always been friendly to me? You wouldn't shut me out now, would you, Tom? Tom replies, Huck, I wouldn't want to, and I don't want to. But what would people say? Why, they'd say, hmm, Tom Sawyer's gang. Pretty low characters in it, and that'd mean you, Huck. You wouldn't like that now, would you? Neither would I. Prejudice. Prejudice. Even the church is not immune to the tendency to be prejudiced. Skin color, social status, educational group, income level often find themselves as unwelcome in the church as Huck Finn was in Tom's gang. This chapter deals with prejudice. The Jews not only hated the Samaritans, but they hated all Gentiles. In fact, they called Gentiles dogs. And we're not talking Lassie here. We're talking, in that day, dogs were not, um, were not domesticated. They were wild animals. They were scavengers. They were dirty. They were filthy. It would be like calling them a coyote or something like that. They called them dogs. Stand the sight of a Gentile. Anybody that wasn't a Jew wasn't on the in-group. They couldn't stand them. And so they excluded them. In fact, it was so bad that when a Jew walked through Gentile land, before he went to, into Israel, he would take off his sandals and he would beat the dirt and the dust off his sandals to make sure no dirty Gentile dirt came with him into Israel. Can you imagine that, that the dirt of a Gentile was dirtier than the dirt on the ground? That's how unclean that it was. And God is going to break down this prejudice and this barrier. And we already see a little hint of it because what many of us read through quickly speaks volumes as to what's going on. Notice in verse 43. How many of you picked up on this? And it came about that he stayed many days in Joppa with a certain tanner by the name of Simon. I read through things and sometimes I just don't get all of it. 
you got to dig through and you go, wow, a certain tanner by the name of Simon. I mean, do you realize what this is saying? Peter stayed with a guy whose job it was, was to skin animals. If you know anything about Judaism, you're not to get near anything that's dead before it's unclean. He stayed in a home of a man whose job it was, was to skin animals and on a regular basis touch and handle dead carcasses. God was at work in his heart, breaking down the barrier that had already previously existed. And he's going to prepare them as we see in verse 20. Verse 1 through 20, he's preparing, first of all, Simon, I mean, uh, first of all, Cornelius, and then he's going to prepare Peter as we see it. There's a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius. He'll go through and explain it as we read. A centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. The legions, Roman legions with 6,000 soldiers, a cohort broke it down into 600, and the centurion soldier was a man who was responsible for 100 soldiers. He was a man of reliability, he was a man of responsibility, and history records that the centurions were basically the backbone of the Roman, of the Roman army. He was a very special man, but that isn't what made him special in the sight of God. What made him special was he was a devout man, notice this, and one who feared God with all of his household. And he gave many alms to the Jewish people and he prayed to God continually. He is a perfect example of the good person. We all run into him, you all run into him. The person that's a good person. But wait a minute, the Bible says that none are righteous, no, not one, all have sinned. But what about we hear? What about good people? This guy was a good person. Notice this, man, he went to church, he was devout, he prayed, he gave to the Jewish people in honor and recognition of their God to whom he was worshiping. He was a man that was on a quest or a search to find the true God. He lived up to the light that he had, and the important thing is this, and God will now give him more light. If good works were enough to save a guy, this guy would have been in. But this is the point. They never are and they never will be. Going to church, reading the Bible, giving money, being a good person, doing nice things, still you lack one thing. And that's this, salvation. Cornelius lacked salvation, but God was preparing his heart to receive the message that would be delivered. It says, about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come to him and said to him, Cornelius, fixing his gaze upon him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. I heard the heart of the person who was crying out in search of me, and I'm answering your prayer. There are only two people in life, and I know this is a bold statement, but I want you to think about it. Those who are seeking truth and those who are seeking an excuse to continue to live the way that you live. Those who are seeking truth of God and seeking Him, and those who are seeking an excuse to continue to be the person that you want to be. There is nobody that I've ever met in between. Cornelius was seeking truth. He was seeking God. And the Bible says, whosoever seeks Him will not be disappointed. God will reveal Himself because what? We already know that God's in pursuit of us. He wants to reveal himself to us. It's only us and our stubbornness and our prideful heart that says, I don't want to know God. Cornelius wanted to know God. And you know what's wonderful about it? He was a man's man. This guy was a, was a, a soldier responsible for a hundred other soldiers. He was a man's man. I run into people all the time and think Christianity is a crutch. And I say, listen to me. Everybody's leaning on something. 
You lean on your money, you lean on your position, you lean on your power, you lean on your, your drugs, or you lean on your alcohol, or you lean on your sexual immorality. Everybody's leaning on something. All I'm here to tell you is that I am leaning on Jesus Christ. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He'll direct your paths. You want to lean on someone who'll never let you down? Then you lean on Jesus. See, Cornelius... And now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon who's also called Peter. He's staying with a, a certain tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. It says, when the angel who was speaking to him had departed, he summoned two of his soldiers and a devout soldier who, of those who were in constant attendance upon him. And after he explained everything to him, he sent them to Joppa. Isn't that great? Cornelius was told what to do and as a good soldier, he immediately obeyed. Yes, Lord, that's exactly what I'll do. He sent for Peter as he was told to send for him. In the meantime... Peter was up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance and he beheld the sky opened up and a certain object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him saying, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, But no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again a voice came to him a second time and said, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the, vi what the vision which he had seen might be, be, he beheld the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate and calling out, they were asking Simon, hey, who was called Peter was staying there. And while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you, but arise, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself. Notice as Peter is just, he can't believe what's happening. He sees this vision from God that has every unclean animal that he's ever read about in Scripture in this sheet that comes down from heaven. God challenges him three times. I like that. There's something about Peter that he just doesn't get it the first time. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like three times seems to be the magic number with him. Remember I said oftentimes I usually wait a week or so before I do what I know what God's leading me to do. Well, I, you know what? Peter's a lot like us in a lot of ways. You know, it was like the first time. You know, he denied Jesus three times and then he affirmed his love for him three times and now God has to speak to him again three times about this vision. It's like, do you get the point I'm trying to make? And the point is this. What used to be unclean is no longer unclean. What I call clean is clean. What I call dirty is dirty. And I want you to understand something. Whom God calls a sinner is a sinner. No matter what or how we assess ourselves, what God defines as a sinner is the only definition that matters. And when he says all, that means you, that means me, that means you, that means all. None righteous, that means none. We're all guilty before God. It's not up to us to define things. And as Peter is standing there, God says, hey, what I say is clean is now clean. And Peter didn't understand all of this, but there was something about Peter's heart that he was submissive to the will of God. The same was true of Cornelius. When God says something, he just did it. When God told Peter something, he just did it. Did he understand it? Not yet. But he was about to understand it because why? He was moving again, being led by God, going in the direction of God's leading, and he was available to God. So Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you're looking for. What is, what's the reason that you've come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous, God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. You notice that? If Cornelius could be saved by good works, 
he would not have had to send for Peter to hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. His heart was prepared to receive the message. If good work saves people, then none of this makes any sense. But good works can't save. And it's only faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. And that's the message He was sent to hear from the mouth of Peter. And notice this. And so He invited them in and gave them lodging. That's another one of those verses you can buzz through real quick, but let me just tell you what it means. Peter had already stayed with Simon the Tanner. Now he invites into his home Gentiles representing Cornelius to spend the night. And the Bible says the word was, so he would lodge with them, indicates not just, hey, you can sleep out back. You know, I, got, I don't have any room in the inn. You can go sleep in the stable. He invited them into his home and he rolled out the red carpet for Gentiles that he used to make, dust off the, their sandals so that there was no Gentile dirt in his life. Now he's going, man, God's doing a work in this guy's heart when it comes to prejudice towards other people. He's no longer bigoted. He's no longer prejudicial. He understands that whatever God says about people is what he should believe about people. He's not excluding anybody because God doesn't exclude anybody. From every nation, race, and culture, from every tongue will be represented in the kingdom of God as we get to heaven one day. We'll see people from all walks of life, all skin colors, all language groups, all cultures. This isn't just a white man's religion. The gospel of Jesus Christ reaches everybody. It's open to all. It's not exclusive in any way, shape, or form. And some of us better get an understanding of that prejudicial heart that we still have and confess that sin to God and get down on our knees and ask God to help us to see people like He sees people. He said, you yourselves, he goes and he goes and Peter raised him up saying, stand up. Notice this, he gets there to the house of Cornelius and Cornelius falls down and he begins to worship Peter. And I like what he says. Peter says, don't worship me, I'm just a man. Let me tell you something. There's only one person that's worthy of worship and praise, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as worshiping men anywhere condoned or found in Scripture. There is no such thing as the background that I'm from where we would have different men that we would worship or pray to to do different things in our life. There's only two kind of people. You're either a saint or you ain't. You're either in or you're out. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil, but there is nobody else. And he says, don't worship me, worship Jesus. As he talked with them, he entered and found many people assembled. Isn't this great? Cornelius sent for Peter to hear a message. You know what Cornelius, something about Cornelius? He loved people. Everybody that he could think of that he wanted to hear the message, he invited to his house. When was the last time you invited somebody to hear the message of God's grace and his love and the gospel of Jesus Christ? When was the last time you saw somebody at work or somebody in your family or somebody in your neighborhood and you thought, you know what, I'm going to invite them and I'm going to have them come to church or this event or that event or something else where I am convinced that they will hear of God's love. They will hear the gospel clearly and plainly. They will hear that they're a sinner, but they will also hear of God's great love, that if they turn from sin and turn to God, trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sin, that they shall be saved. When was the last time your heart was so motivated as Cornelius's was to invite a multitude of people come to my house because God is sending a messenger to send a message and if it's God's message you need to hear it I need to hear it let's all hear it together this is going to be exciting stuff isn't that great? that's what he did that's why notice Peter says I came without even raising any objection because in verse 28 he says God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean has God showed you that? 
Cornelius said four days ago, and he explains the vision. I was praying in my house during the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. He said, Cornelius, your prayer's been heard. Your alms have been remembered by God. Send therefore to Joppa, invite Simon, who was also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I've sent to you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Don't miss this. When God attracts an audience, an audience as small as one, He has attracted them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't ever miss that. Whoever God brings into your life, He's bringing for the purpose of them hearing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. Sometimes we get sidetracked. We forget why we're there. It's to present the gospel, and he plainly does in verses 34 through 43. Peter says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. Could you imagine? He walks into Cornelius' house, and it is busting loose with people that are eager to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, man, you know what? It's obvious God's hands in all of this. It's obvious God's brought these people here. It's obvious that God is the one at work in the hearts of these people, preparing them to hear the message that's about to be delivered. And while personally I may not have invited any one of them here because of the prejudice in my heart up to this point, I can now see that, you know what? That's an area of my life that I need to surrender to the Lord and I need to be open to everybody. When I spoke a couple years ago at, a memorial, at the Easter sunrise service at Fairhaven, one of the things that God impressed upon me and we were sitting up on the stage and it was night, it was still, you know, it was still dark and, and the sun hadn't come up yet and they were holding off on starting because as they looked out and as far as you could see, all the way down as if uh, Fairhaven, yeah, Fairhaven or Santa Clara, I don't know, whatever the street was, but as far down as you can see were headlights and as far up Tustin as you can see, getting off the 22 freeway, were headlights of cars that were coming and God impressed upon me, I am bringing those people here for one purpose. And that is to hear the gospel of my son. The good news of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. To preach the, the power of his resurrection. And how Jesus is alive today and the power of his resurrection. And the power that he has to change hearts from dead to life. From an alien against God to becoming a child of God. Don't forget why you were invited. To preach the gospel. And he begins to do so. In every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, that he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. And you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in this land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they also put him to death by hanging him on the cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he should become visible, not to all people, but to the witnesses who were chosen before him by God, that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he had ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That's it. 
There is no other name under heaven. There is no other way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No one comes unto the Father but through me. There is no other way to be forgiven of sin by God but through faith in Jesus Christ, His death and His resurrection on the behalf of the individual who believes that in his heart. That's it. That's the message that we are to proclaim. That's the burden that we are to have for people around us. That's why we're involved in the lives of others. So that somehow in that relationship, we will have the ability or opportunity to tell them about Jesus. That's it. They were granted spiritual power. They received the Holy Spirit as all who trust in Christ receive the Spirit of God. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to his message. And all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles. It was like, whoa! They had seen the Holy Spirit poured out on the Jews. Now they see the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles. Man, they are eyewitnesses to the fact that, you know what? For the person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone, to them we are given the privilege to be called children of God, even to those who believe in His name. Not born out of our own will, but out of the will of God. It's God's will that those who trust in Christ become children of God, to those who believe upon His name. Spiritual power, the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. It was amazing what God did. He duplicated what happened in Jerusalem. So that the Jews could never say, well, you know what, but we spoke in tongues and they didn't speak in tongues. God did the same thing to the Jew and to the Gentile. Man, he wanted to make sure there was no division, no misunderstanding, no separation. This was an incredible time. Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, who receive the Holy Spirit. There was a symbolic confession we've talked about over and over again. Why are we baptized after coming to faith in Christ? So we can confess before the world what we've decided upon in our own heart. They were baptized. And he ordered them, notice this, and he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. And we see again another sign of those who are genuinely born again is fellowship with other believers. Peter, in his prejudice, in his background, couldn't stand to be with Gentiles all of his life. And yet what God called unclean, he recognized was now no longer unclean. He realized that even though the Jews thought they were better than the Gentiles, that everybody was in the same playing field, that all were sinners and had fallen short of the glory of God, that all needed a Savior, and He is Christ the Lord. As the angel announced at the birth of Jesus Christ, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, none other than Christ the Lord. The greatest miracle that God can do for any person is save the sinner from the wrath and the judgment of God. Have you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ been saved from that fate? Have you received the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ? Have you been born again? Because there's no other way to the Father but through the Son. For those of us who know Christ, the question I have for you is this. Are there prejudices still in your heart that you need to confess before God and ask Him to help you see people that He brings into your life as God sees them? People that He has sent Jesus Christ into this world to die upon a cross for the forgiveness of their sins for those who believe. God, help us to become people who are more like Jesus and that we see every person that God brings into our life a candidate to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ.
The greatest miracle is the raising of a dead sinner into an alive, vibrant child of God. Every healing was for the purpose of bringing faith to Christ. Every raising of the dead was for the purpose of being, bringing others to faith in Christ. The greatest miracle is faith in Jesus Christ. Salvation costs the greatest price, it produces the greatest results, and it brings the greatest glory to God.